Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. In the final step before the band and company made a decision of who they were going to go with, they had three final questions. First two questions were business questions. Very easy to answer. The third question is what is your strategy with regards to diversity and inclusion? That's John Platt, chairman and CEO of Sony Music Publishing, the world's largest music publisher. John sat with us recently for a fireside chat in front of a live virtual audience and shared his insights on his early days in the music industry, how diversity and inclusion is a source of competitive advantage, and the most pressing issues facing the future of music publishing. John first climbed the ladder at EMI Music Publishing. After EMI was acquired by Sony in 2012, he ran Warner Chapel Music Publishing. In 2019, he was appointed CEO of what was then a Sony ATV, now known as Sony Music Publishing. John is often credited with fostering hip-hop as a significant force in music publishing by elevating how R&B and hip-hop artists are respected and compensated as songwriters. Throughout his career, John has signed and collaborated with some very prominent writers, including Jay-Z, Beyonce, Kanye, Pharrell, Drake, Rihanna, and Usher, among many others. Our conversation was recorded in front of a live audience of NYU music business alumni and current students. So, John, what is it with artists with just one name? Yeah, I guess I have signed uh, numerous uh, songwriters with the last name, but it's funny because a lot of the songwriters that I've signed, you would know would be like first and last name, like maybe Tamara Savage or Rich Harrison or maybe Warren Campbell. You you may not know, or Taylor Parks is actually one that's very popular now. A lot of people you may not know those names, but they know their music. And that's, that's what I'm most proud of. And even when you talk about some of those iconic artists that I've been very, very lucky to work with, I started with them at the beginning of their careers, all of them actually, with the exception of Beyonce. I started with her after she recorded her first solo album is when she and I began working together. We've been working together ever since. But I, I take great pride in finding their genius very early on and, and wanting to work with them. And it, it's something incredible has been able to been achieved by all of us that's been part of that journey. So whatever small role I played in it, I've been very happy, but as proud as I am of them, of their iconic status that they continue to have, I'm most proud of the journey that we've had together in, in, in building something incredible. It has been an incredible run for you and for the amazing talent that you've been associated with for now a pretty long time. So today you run the world's biggest music publisher, but let's rewind a bit. And sure. Would you mind sharing how you started in the business? Okay. I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. I, music has always been a, a, a major major part of my life as, as a small child. I was born in Philly, we lived in Oakland, California, and then we moved to Denver when I was in the fifth grade. And moving to Denver was a bit of a, let's say a culture shock. You know, it was in Oakland, which is a lot of black people in Oakland, multiple R&B radio stations, so on and so forth. And moving to Denver, where there wasn't an FM R&B radio station. It was an AM radio station and the signal would get very, very weak at night. And so uh, my older brother began to listen to the FM stations, which was rock music, which is what we would call classic rock today. Anyway, I really became attached to that music as well as the R&B music that I grew up loving. And so it really expanded my musical taste as, as a young child. From there, I got into DJing and 
became a very, very popular DJ in Denver, DJing a lot of teen and college parties. And at some point in that, I, I was able to meet Chuck D from Public Enemy very early in his career. We developed a, a friendship on one of Chuck's trips to Denver after we met, and he's an established artist at this time. He basically challenged me to do something different and, and to grow. And I thought I was doing quite well in Denver. He challenged me that basically I could do more than what I'm doing in Denver. He actually suggested that I should be in the music business. That next morning, a dream began. And years later, I find myself in Los Angeles and found some producers that were going to USC college students, like many of you in the audience. And I was able to get them a publishing deal with EMI Music Publishing probably in 1992. In 1995, EMI offered me a job in music publishing as a creative manager, which is basically the lowest person on the total pole in the A&R department. Creative um, in music publishing is the same as A&R in a record company. So I was creative manager, started then, and within the first six months, I signed a songwriter with a first and last name by the name of Marquez Etheridge. And Marquez wrote Waterfalls for TLC. And at that, after that, I was hooked. I was like, this is going to be my life. And here I am now. That was when I was at EMI. And here I am 26 years later, essentially leading EMI again, you know what I'm saying? Which is now part of Sony Music Publishing. It sounds almost serendipitous that you ended up in publishing, of all things, once you had gotten challenged as you did as a pretty happening DJ, right? Yeah. I often say music publishing found me. I didn't go uh-huh. looking for music publishing. I didn't move to um, Los Angeles and, and to say, I'm going to be in music publishing. I just wanted to be in the music business. And like many other people, I thought that was going to be at a record company. And I read the Don Passman book, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. And, and so that's how management jumped out to me. And so when I got the people I was managing a publishing deal, I figured I'd better learn this publishing thing a little bit. And that's really how it came about. And I was just at EMI every single day when I was in Los Angeles. And in 1995, Jody Gerson, who's now CEO at Universal Music Publishing, hired me and changed my life forever. When you and I first met, you were at EMI and you had a long run there, 17 years, ultimately yes. as the senior creative executive in, in the company, and then went to take your first CEO role. Right at Warner Chapel. What was that like, being responsible for the entire business after having grown up entirely on the creative side? Yeah, so it didn't really happen in that. EMI was sold in 2012. I decided to leave the company, and I went to Warner Chapel. And I was president of creative at EMI. And then Warner Chapel offered me president of creative at Warner Chapel. I had the same title at EMI. I was basically the top creative in the entire music publishing industry. Then I go to Warner Chapel and they offered me the same exact role. I just made a bet on myself, basically. And I was like, you know what? I've never been about titles. A year later, they made me president of the company, not just creative. And then at that time, the CEO that was there, Cameron Strang, he had dual CEO roles. He was the CEO of Warner Chapel and also the CEO of Warner Brothers Records. Running a record company requires a lot of time. And Cameron was really trying to turn Warner Brothers Records around, which left me at the publishing company to really grow and really begin to lead the music publishing company. Fast forward two years after that, and Warner asked me to run the publishing company as the chairman and CEO. And that's when that happened. It wasn't the smoothest transition as I would have liked, but it did happen. When I was at EMI, I was in a leadership role. And what happens in the music business is, and it still happens a bit now, I don't operate our company like this because I've seen the effect of it. You become successful, you do a new contract, you get a new title. So if you're a director, now you're a senior director. If you're a senior director, now you're a VP and so on and so forth. But no one, I should say rarely, do people tell you what's expected of a senior director. 
or what's expected of a VP or senior VP or EVP or president. That's just how the music industry operates at times. And so I became president of creative, basically became my colleague's boss overnight. People that I was shoulder to shoulder with, now I'm their boss. But I'm still doing A&R as well because I'm the top creative at the company. So there's a, as much as I need to lead the team, a lot is expected of me to continue to do the job that I've been doing. And so when I left EMI, I took three months off. I gave a lot of thought of what do I want to do differently at Warner now that I'm going into an entirely new situation that maybe I could have been better on an EMI. I was just honest with myself and I came up with, I think I could be a better leader. And because I was so successful and so driven that I was the type of person that if you couldn't get it done, then I'll get it done. And when I look back on that experience, I came to the conclusion that probably wasn't great leadership. And so I went in to Warner with the direct focus on being a leader and being collaborative. And it really changed my life. And I was working with people I never worked with. So I had a clean slate. I had this blank canvas and I spotted a few people who were, who I thought could be stars in the company. All of them turned out to be stars. Hired a guy named Ben Vaughn to run our Nashville operations. I've worked with Ben at EMI and hired him to come and run and run Warner's Nashville operations. And at that time, Warner was a, let's just call it the very, very, very distant second place in Nashville to Sony Music Publishing. Over time, we as Warner overtook Sony's reign at number one. And now, now I regret it because I built a monster and now Warner is so, <laughs> they're number one now. Now we're chasing them. Sony's chasing them to try to, you know, become the leader again. But I'm very proud of Ben Vaughn, what that created. There was a couple of other executives, um, Ryan Press and Katie Benson, who I worked with on the U.S. team. They weren't the most senior executives on the A&R team. But what happened was when I got the CEO role, I needed someone to run the A&R team. And what I did is it was unheard of, to be completely honest with you. I gave the job of head of A&R to who I saw as the hardest working A&R while I was running the A&R team. So I made named Rick, Katie and Ryan co-heads of A&R for the U.S. Now, give you a little context. Katie Vinton, her name was Katie Donovan at the time. She was my assistant at EMI. And she came over to Warner as a junior A&R. And three years later, she's running the A&R team along with Ryan Press, who was already at Warner. And their careers just blossom. And I just, I just take great pride in helping people grow their careers. It's really rewarding. It's rewarding to them. It's rewarding to me as well. So it's kind of a bit of a long-winded story, but I thought it was an important story to share. Now you have the biggest platform in the world to develop executives and writers. And given the full generation length of time that your predecessor at Sony was there, I wonder what went through your mind, given that Sony had at least partially absorbed EMI Music Publishing mm -hmm. by then. When you got that call, what went through your mind? Well, they had absorbed all of EMI by the time I got the call. So I did get the call. And it was interesting because, for first of all, I didn't know it was for to leave the entire company. The previous leader had been there for so long and didn't show any signs that leaving anytime soon. And so so then when they said, no, it's to run the company, I was like, wow, I think that's probably at least a meeting I should take, you know, just see what it is. And, and the reason, I don't want to say I was hesitant about it because that's not being 100% truthful. But what I can say is that at that time when I got that call, we had built Warner chapeled into a serious contender. And they still are now. Basically turned the entire company around. I was quite proud of that. And, and we were building something really, really special. So the dilemma comes, do I want to walk away from this thing that everyone thought was impossible and it's reputable now and it's competitive and it's, it's becoming sustainable? Do I want to walk away from all of that and go take on the number one music publishing company in the world? Anyway, I did the meetings and Larry, it just felt right. 
It just felt right from the first meeting. You know, I did multiple meetings and every meeting felt better than the last meeting. It just felt right. I, I can share with you that I was at EMI, as you said, for 17 and a half years. I went to Warner Chapel. There were things that I missed having an EMI than I, when I was at Warner Chapel. I worked with some very incredible people, but there was just certain things infrastructure-wise that I missed while I was at Warner Chapel that were my resources at EMI. It just felt right. Sometimes when people reach out to you for an opportunity, you don't really know if it's going to happen. It's like a bit speculative to a degree. So I didn't allow myself to kind of fully want it. You know what I mean? And so at some point during the process, I decided, you know, I really want this. This is what I really want to do. And once I get into that mode, it's probably going to happen because I, I just don't think negatively. I just figure, you know, I'm going to work until it happens. I'm very happy that it happened. And I'm very happy of what the opportunity ahead of us to, to really lead the music publishing industry. John, you wrote last year following George Floyd's murder in music business worldwide in an op-ed that we must create a platform that provides each and every colleague the encouragement for true self-expression. For people of color, you wrote, this means the comfort to connect, mourn, and heal in authentic ways that might be unfamiliar to or uncomfortable for some colleagues, but I encourage you to lean into that discomfort. I want to ask you about that and about how diversity and inclusion in action is changing the culture and the business at Sony Music Publishing. I meant every word of that, and we're all different people, but there are times where powers that be want you to act the way they want you to act. And that's not allowing others to be authentic. And when last summer happened, it shook the world, not just the United States, it shook the world. And it was very important to let people be their authentic self. And that might make you or others feel uncomfortable. And when I said, I encourage you to lean into that discomfort, what I mean by that is, when you're in those uncomfortable situations, when you're in those challenging situations, in my experience, that's where the magic happens. And so I encourage you to lean into those things because most people just revert back to their comfort zone, just their safe place, their authentic place. And that's kind of not where the magic happens. You know, you got to lean into that discomfort. And Sony, we've created those opportunities for people to do that. And I thought it was important for, I wasn't speaking you know, one thing I don't think you think you noticed or, or many may not notice when I wrote that letter, I never mentioned Sony once in the letter. And and that was intentional because this to me, this wasn't a Sony thing, people thing. And luckily, the letter was the ma majority wise embraced. But I also knew that could have went horribly in another direction. And I didn't want to take Sony on that journey with me. You know what I mean? But what I wrote was important to me. I meet so many people right now who let me know what me being in this role means to them and and gives them hope and belief that they could do it. I'd never worked for a black leader my entire career, ever. So what does that do? Luckily, I had aspirations to do what I'm doing right now. But for others including myself, if, it, it's, it's hard to dream for that if you don't see that. It could be hard for a woman to think she could run a company if she doesn't see Jody. You know what I mean? And I think it's important that people see the full spectrum and know that it's possible for them. And so I take it very, very serious. And so when I walked into Sony, we walked into a very different company and we got to work 
very, I started April in 2019 and we got to work April 1st, 2019 on really brick by brick rebuilding this culture. We did it with people of color. We did it with females. We did it outside of America. It's, it's just, it's just very important. And you asked how important is it to business? Mm. Very important to business. There's a new deal that we haven't announced yet. So I can't share the details on the deal or who it is. But what I can share, it was a very competitive deal. And we, we made it to the final round with other companies as well. And in the final step before the band and company made a decision of who they were going to go with, they had three final questions. First two questions were business questions, we'll call them, right? Very easy to answer. The third question was, what is your strategy with regards to diversity and inclusion? Never been asked that question one time before in business. Never been more happy to answer a question like that. And it was the thing, you know, that I preached to the company and to others. It's like, this is a part of business now. You know what I mean? If you fail at this, you're likely to fail at a part of your business. And we got the deal. We shared with them our strategy. We shared with them how we started this in April 2019. We were able to show them tangible results. And, and in their response to us, they told us that played an important role in the deal. And that's proof that this is now part of business. I want to go to, to one more question that I had for you. Sure. And then I'm going to go to some student questions that were submitted before we started tonight. My last question is about uh, this year, this 14 months that we've just lived through. How did COVID affect or disrupt to even the basic operations in the publishing business? How did it disrupt revenue streams that you were counting on? And should we be looking forward to a period of creative brilliance as a result of collaborations and new things that were invented during the last 14 months that we haven't heard yet? Sure. I'll, I'll try to unpack a lot of that. Um, in the beginning, studio sessions went away for creators. That was a struggle in the beginning. Eventually, we got the virtual sessions going. And then eventually, months later, certain territories began to open up a little bit. And, you know, we've been open, close, open, close, open, close, right? Um, with restrictions and whatnot. And so at some point, studios began to open a bit and, and that became began to come back. But the creative process took a very serious hit in the beginning. And then as creators do, they figure it out. And that's what creators do. And the creative process kind of self-corrected. And so that part, you know, started going again. Shows went away. And that's something that I think people really need to pay attention to because during this um, quarantine, there were a lot of artists who had really big songs. You know what I mean? Really, really big songs. They didn't have that touring aspect that you would have once you have a big record to begin to build your career. You know, you have to do shows to build your career. And that was taken away. From them and it still is gone it's coming back online now in the beginning during quarantine people didn't know like well people are going to go back to shows and so on and so forth people cannot wait to go back to shows i think if you did a show right now in madison square garden and you said the show was tonight it would it would sell out it's an area that we're really gonna have to look back on and see what opportunities were missed for artists but there's been some positive aspects as well tiktok exploded during the during the quarantine Exercise apps exploded, fitness apps exploded. And these were opportunities for songwriters. Their, their music was heard in very different platforms and that didn't exist at the level that they did pre-quarantine. Very exciting. There was a platform that was 
initiated during quarantine called Versus, where 90s hip hop and R&B artists play their hits, basically back to back to back. And it's a battle exploded during the um, quarantine. And it really proved a point that I've been trying to drive home for years, which is when I came into the business in 1995, we'll call them catalog or legacy artists. Were the artists from 20 to 30 years prior, right? So let's, so I came in 95, so let's say 1975, 65, so on and so forth. So that's, let's call that the Motown era and some of that era, which I call classic rock. And they were treated as royalty, treated as catalog legacy artists. For some reason, that hasn't been the case for 90s artists. They aren't treated in the same regard as these legacy catalog artists. And a lot of it is because some of them are still very active. And so people, kind of don't see them as like these legacy, you know, artists yet. But what Versus did is it, it it showed the legacy. You know, I was told for years at another company that people don't stream catalog music. And I was like, well, they will one day. It's just a natural evolution. And we can get into that later because that's why catalog prices are going through the roof because people are betting that that's going to change even more. And so to see those 90s hip hop and R&B artists have their moment and prove that they are legacy artists and they do matter and people do care. And and then you see it, which is the latest climax of it all. You see an Isley Brothers versus Earth, Wind and Fire. It has over four million people on various platforms watching this. You know, the Oscars got nine million people to watch this last Oscar. Now it's the lowest rated Oscars ever, but they had nine million people watching it. Almost 50 percent of that amount tuned into their devices to watch Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind and Fire play songs back to back. That shows you what's possible. I try to view things as what's possible. What can we build upon that we got from this? You know what I mean? Our work environment has changed forever because of this. The way we approach how people get work done. I can go on and on about it, but I think as much as it challenged us in, in, in a negative way, there were so many other positive aspects of it as well that we were able to get out of it and take forward with us once we get out of this. John, you you just mentioned catalog valuations, and I can't help myself. I have to go there. Um, Just, you know, a comment, if you don't mind, about this time that we are living through and whether you think there will be leveling off in the highest quality uh, catalogs in terms of the multiples that those catalogs are trading for, or whether we should expect continued growth over the next year or two. What do you think? Well, I think over the next year or two, you'll see continued growth. Eventually, there will be a leveling off. I can't tell you today when that will be, but it will be a leveling off. It's a perfect scenario right now for something like this. Interest rates are low for the financial players. There's a huge bet on music streaming going forward for catalog music. I think for, we'll call them legacy songwriters, I think it's a fantastic moment for them to to determine their destiny, basically, today. For younger songwriters who are selling their catalogs, I stress to be very, very careful and give serious, serious thought to this before you sell it. I just have a fundamental, I don't want to call it a problem, like I just very strong concern of people in their 30s and 40s selling their life's work at that age. I just think they should give a lot of thought to it because once it's gone, it's gone. Once you sell it, you sell it. And now if you sell it, you reinvest the money and all these other type of things. Very rarely do you find someone who sells something and say, I'm glad I sold that when it comes to their creative work. I'm glad I sold that 20 years later. You know what I mean? I'm glad I sold that. I've never heard that before. I've never heard it once before. So when you're 30s and 40s, 20 years later will come sooner than you think. And I don't think you'll be saying, 
you're glad you sold it. Is that out of the emotional and identity connection that that early work had for those artists who are still creating new and potentially commercial and popular work? Or do you think that there's something else that they ought to be holding out for in the future in building their body of work? It's unfair for me to dictate what that should be. Listen, Blair, you've been doing this a long time, right? I've been doing it uh, long since 95 myself. We've never seen a period like this. Neither one of us have never seen a moment in time like this where catalogs are being valued at the level they're valued at. I don't know if that will ever happen again. Someone who was going to, you know, there's be people you and I know who, who sold their catalog 20 years ago. They didn't know streaming would come along. They just didn't know that would come along. No one knew. No one knew. And, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like the business is going to continue to evolve and in, in many ways. Now, it can evolve in a negative way, too, as it did years ago. We're involved into a way where people wonder, would there ever still be a music business? We, we lived through that as well. But the, the music will never die. That's what I do know. That's what I do know is the music will never die. People will never stop listening. And I just take great pride and value in that. That being said, people have to do what's right in their heart. And I'm not telling younger songwriters, don't do it. I'm not doing that at all. I would never do that. I'm just saying, give serious thought to it. Give very serious thought to it. It's not apples to apples process. We have a student who had a question about the business that you're operating within Sony. It's different Mm -hmm. from the publishing company at Warner Music Group, freestanding music company, Universal, within Vivendi, about to be spun out. You've got all these other businesses at Sony, like Sony Interactive. And his, his question was about licensing music to PlayStation, for example. Is it easier, more difficult to work with your cousin companies within Sony or not so much? No, it's not difficult at all. We actually enjoy it. First of all, it's fairly new leadership at all of the companies. Myself at Sony Music Publishing, Rob Stringer, Sony Music Group, and Sony Music Entertainment as well. Tony Vince Square at Sony Pictures and Jim Ryan at, at PlayStation. All fairly new in the leadership roles that we're in. And so... That presented an opportunity for us to all really put our heads together and, and work more closely. So it actually is a big advantage. You know, what I tell a lot of people is like, and it's true, there's no company in the world like Sony in the entertainment industry that has all of those different businesses and they all are actually truly connected or can be connected. And those other companies that you mentioned, they're not connected to film companies that just coincidentally have the same name. As them, they're not even cousins, much less sister companies. They're totally separate companies. We are connected all under the Sony Corp umbrella. And there's great power in that. And there's great opportunity for all creators in that. That is one of the mantras of our company is getting closer to our, to the creators and making their lives better. So I, I think it's a huge asset. It's not harder. It's actually easier. And it's not just about licensing music. There's, there's movies that we have in development now with songwriters that we have and so on and so forth. So it actually is really, really fun. And it's actually really fun for me personally, because I've been able to learn, I have a front row seat to learn about other businesses that I've never had the opportunity to do in my entire career. And I think it's just fascinating. We have a question on emerging markets. This one is about where the opportunity is and is the investment being made now in publishing in emerging markets more about cultivating local artists for local markets or is about finding 
and developing, you know, the next global superstar who can move across territories. So we recently opened an office in India, Indonesia, a few other places. And then we, we have an office in Atlanta, Georgia now as well that we opened last year, the first time ever. And so you want to make sure you're developing things locally. And if one of those things break out, or multiple of those things would be a great example, break out and become global things, that'd be fantastic. But I think you have to be authentic to the region that you're in. You don't want to just go in and just say, hey, we're going to find this thing to be the next global superstar. That's really, truly catching lightning in the bottle. But if we go in with the attitude of we really want to be an asset to the territory and make sure the local talent here is serviced correctly and that we can help identify some of this local talent. And if one of those things break out and becomes a global superstar, then all the better. But it would be authentic, though. So the answer is truly both, to be honest with you. But the it, it's 90 percent weighted towards establishing ourselves in the local territory and being true to that territory and, and helping the local talent. So all local territories are different, perhaps none more different from the others than India. And we had a question about India, and the company has recently entered that country. Uh, historically, the music business in India led by film music. What are your thoughts about that market and its general potential for developing writers and an ecosystem well, for before, collecting money? Before I really get into that answer, I, I just want to personally say my thoughts and prayers go to the people in India right now. They're having a very, very tough time with the pandemic. So I actually feel a little weird answering that question and what they're going through right there. But it's a, it's a very big film industry there. So we we see that as an opportunity for us to go into there and make sure those songwriters who are contributing to those films have an infrastructure where their songs are licensed and we can collect from them. And then, you know, our plan is to eventually sign local songwriters in the region the way we do in other regions as well. So India is a, is a very, very big opportunity for us. I think it's going to be very big in the future of music. Final question. In your opinion, the one most pressing issue facing the publishing industry, there's a lot of them. Sure. Which, which one is on the top of the pile as you think about uh, this next year in particular, and, and how, w- how would you approach solving it? Well, the most pressing issue is making sure songwriters are compensated fairly. That is the most pressing issue. Now, there's good news on the horizon on some of that with the Music Modernization Act. It's a very important landmark change in our industry. When you look at the problem that songwriters had in being paid you know, on time and, and in some ways correctly from the DSPs, that part is changing thanks to the Music Modernization Act. When you look at $424 million that's going to be distributed to songwriters over time, that was unmatched money. It proves the system was broken. But the songwriters are going to get that money. And so the MMA is a very big part of that solution. Because of the MMA and things that are in place now, I don't think that you'll see anywhere near that level of money and unmatched funds going forward. And that's a good thing. The other thing is music royalty rates with regards to digital services are it's regulated in the United States. We don't get to operate in publishers don't get to operate in a free market like record labels. So that being said, you know, as a result of the MMA, the, the rate standard, the CRB is now, you know, it's now designed to deliver rates that are otherwise likely to be negotiated in a free market. With CRB, we'll call it CRB3 just for the audience because CRB4 is coming fast upon us. But in CRB3, the rates that were delivered to songwriters were really good news. You know, they were going to increase uh, 40% over the next years. That's a very big step in the right direction. However, DSPs had a right to appeal those rates, and they chose to do exactly that. What's unfortunate is the CRB ruled on the rates to increase the rates 
but songwriters currently are still being paid at 2013 rates. We do feel that very hopeful that the appellate court affirms the CRB three rates, but I can say we're confident that they'll be higher than the 2013 rates. That's a constant fight every day. And we're not the only ones in that fight. There's other publishing companies. And then, you know, the NMPA is a massive asset to songwriters in the publishing industry as well. So it's always going to come down to the money and how can we get the right amount of money in the songwriters' pockets as quickly as possible. Thank you, John. And thank you to you and your amazing staff at Sony Music Publishing for engineering this. I will say that you're not the type of executive who is uh, is out there giving public talks every week or every month. And we are grateful that you uh, that you chose to say yes. And we appreciate that. And we appreciate you and uh, in this hour. So on behalf well, of all of us, thank you. Thank you, Larry. You know, you've been asking me to do something like this for a while. And yeah. I thought the time was right. And I'm just very thankful to speak to these students that have such a bright future ahead of them. And I never went to college, so when college has asked me to speak, I feel quite proud about that. So thank you to all of you as well. And Larry, thank you for all that you do, teaching these kids and getting them prepared for life, uh, for their life in the future in the music industry. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Special thanks to Dana Baxter and Katie McClenney of Sony Music Publishing for their assistance with this event and its recording. Technical production this episode from Nakul Sharma and Ankit Shug. Editorial support from Jory Roberts, Mari Barbieri, Clayton Durant, Ritvik Chakradar, and Nishit Singh of the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Graduate Program. And thanks to Laurie Jacobson of Jaybird Communications. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. 